On this podcast, whatever you're dealing with, we call your this, capital T-H-I-S. Here on episode 10, Beth's this was the loss of her son. The way I describe the, the impact of losing a child is if you were hit full force by a freight train and you survived, you would spend months, if not years, in hospitals and rehabilitation. And even when you came home, people would treat you very tenderly because they would know that the healing process was still going on. Losing a child is like being hit by a freight train at full force, except the wounds are not visible. Welcome to This Seriously Sucks, the right podcast when life goes seriously wrong. In these interview episodes, people who've been through major traumas and events that derailed their lives talk about times when they didn't want to go on and share how they did. All our guests are at least 10 years past their big this. They keep it real, pull no punches, and share what they wish they had known when they were in the middle of their this. Now, here is your host, the author of This Is Not The End, who knows what it feels like to want it to be the end, Nina Sossaman Pogue. Yes, this is the right podcast when life goes seriously wrong. I am so glad you found us. Thank you for sharing some time today. On this podcast, we talk about the lowest moments of highly successful people, the major life events that rocked their world and how they got through them. We can all learn from their stories of resilience. And today's guest is a public figure. She served for nearly 20 years as a public servant, and she still coaches political candidates. We'll talk more about her journey there. She grew up near Buffalo. She has three children. She lives out in California now in Irvine with her husband. And she's just a lovely person who I actually met through a book cohort because she's writing a book and working on some fun things. And so, Beth, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So nice to have you. And I, I like to begin with the success part of our resumes to sort of set the stage for talking about how we got through the very difficult moments in our lives. Because at one point in your life, like many of us and maybe some of our listeners, you couldn't see a bright future. You were in a really difficult place. Three months into a race, when you uh, launched a race for Congress, you were forced to face a really unprecedented, unpredictable loss when your son passed away. So let's start there, even though I know there was one before, let's start there and talk to me about what moment, the, the, the moment of change, because we all have this transitional moment of change and share that story with us. Well, and, and I'll be happy to get into the other situation uh, later, although I will say that having had my husband diagnosed with a neurological condition at the age of 40, um, which forced him to give up his position, uh, his, his profession as an optometrist. Um, you know, at that moment, there was a lot of pivoting. My kids were seven, nine, and 11. And, you know, I felt like that was the biggest thing that we would ever go through. And then in 2009, three months into a race for Congress, and our son, Noah, who was 22, um, a week away from his college graduation, had an accidental fall from a cliff uh, near his apartment in a community called Isla Vista, which is uh, adjacent to UC Santa Barbara and is really a student community next to the university. And so we were planning 
for our trip to his graduation and we had to pivot and plan his funeral. I can't imagine. Uh, I've done many interviews in my life and other, both in television and, and now with this podcast, but having three children right at that age, I just can't imagine this one. So how do you get through that? Well, you know, as you mentioned, I was on the local city council here in Irvine, California. Um, I didn't have to worry about how people would find out because it was news. And my father at the time was a news anchor in Buffalo. So it was news there too. You know, it was overwhelming and devastating and impossible to even absorb. I remember that day, uh, uh, the chief of police had the unfortunate responsibility to inform me. And I remember him driving me back to my home and seeing people, it was a beautiful, it was in June, it was a beautiful day. People were riding bicycles and playing ball. And I remember thinking like, like how can the world continue turning? Like, do you not understand that our world has just been shattered? And it was for me, someone who had always um, sort of regarded myself as someone who could pivot on a dime, who could, you know, I could be juggling 12 plates and I could grab somebody else's plate in my teeth and run interference between, you know, a boomerang and the person it was being directed at, you know. And I was put into a state that I had never experienced before. And I had experienced trauma before, but this was something that, that knocked me to my knees. I remember having to go and tell my parents and thinking that we were going to bury three people because they wouldn't survive that news. Uh. So there was the immediacy of the loss. My daughter and son who were 20, my son was 20 and my daughter was 24 at the time. Noah was 22 when he died, came to me, uh, a day or so later and said they wanted to walk for him at his graduation, oh. <laughs> which was completely like, I thought that was an amazing thing and something that I knew wasn't something I would ever be able to do. And I was grateful that they wanted to honor their brother that way. Uh, it's interesting because my sister and brother-in-law traveled to Santa Barbara with them they said they couldn't go to the graduation. They weren't that strong, yeah. but they would clean out his apartment and bring his things back. And I remember when they got back, uh, I asked them to put his things into his bedroom. And I imagined someday I will have the strength to open a suitcase or, or a backpack. And several weeks later, I did go in. Nobody was home, was quiet. And I reached into his backpack and I pulled out a paper that he had written for a comparative literature class. And it was an analysis of the book, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, which mm -hmm. is a book that speaks about death in more than one scenario. You know, I read this paper 
And the last sentence was, in death as in all things, it's all a matter of perspective. And I remember thinking to myself that I was grateful that Noah in life had had a chance to contemplate the arc of life and death and that he had lived every day of his life. You know, I was one of those people, he was very smart. I was one of those people who just knew if you worked a little harder because things seemed easy to him that, uh, you know, and, and, but when he passed away, I thought, you know, if he had spent 22 years with his nose in a book and had never really lived and then had lost his life, that would have really been a tragedy. So he did live every day of his life. He had been celebrating the night that he passed away, celebrating the end of his college career, looking forward to what would come next. And it was as if he had been plucked out of the universe at just this very definitive time in a person's life between what they'd been doing, between his college years and between a career that he hadn't even yet started. But it was, it was heartbreaking and it, uh, you know, it's something that is with you all your life. So, yeah. Yeah. People always say, when will, when will I be past this? But it's just, you, you grow through it. You're not the same person you were before. And you mentioned a lot of people that helped you, people that came and cleaned out his room, your children who walked the stage. For people who are going through difficult times, I always like to remind them to lean on some of the people around them because you do need someone. Uh, I mean, it takes a village. It's nice if you have a whole village, but there's got to be someone who you can lean on and even very strong people like you. And I can see you juggling everything in office and catching the boomerang. That was such a good analogy. I could figure, I could see you doing this just because I've met you. I, even someone like you who could handle everything on any other given day, this was something even you needed help with. And I think that's really important to share. And, and you know, it was interesting I mean, first of all, I think that, you know, burying a child is the closest we'll ever come to attending our own memorial, you know, because the amount of love and energy that flowed to our family in support, but also the people that, you know, I had helped and supported along the way. I mean, people were only too grateful for the opportunity to help us navigate um, this very dark place. And, you know, the things that you don't think about, um, the business of death, you know, I mean, I have to find a plot and the expense of burying anyone. Um, and, uh, you know, Noah's death was an accident, but the public safety people in Santa Barbara County were involved. so. I was in the cemetery looking for a plot when I got a call from the investigator. And you know, you're know, you hearing people describe your child to you, uh, not necessarily in ways that um, are the person you know. And you know, one of the things that's very hard is that when somebody dies, if they die in an accident, if they die under any circumstances, and I do work with other moms who have lost kids, uh, you know, we come together to support one another. And whether it's an overdose or whether it is a suicide or whether it is a health related death, the one who passes cannot speak for themselves. 
And there's a quote that I think is, you know, very meaningful to me, which is mothers protect their children and grieving mothers protect their children's memories. And so even as I was absorbing the shock of Noah's death, I was also having to deal as someone who had been a mayor and a council member who had been notified by the chief of police in my city, somebody that I had worked with very closely. Now I was dealing with public safety personnel in another jurisdiction. I was dealing with the university. And so as so many people do, I not only lost my son, but I had to deal with a narrative that was being written about his death and that was being published. And I was a public person. So, you know, what was being put into the paper or what was being released by the department was something that, of course, the press was very interested in reporting on. And so, you know, going through something like this as a public person, you know, on the one hand, I didn't have to call everybody up and tell them what had happened. It, that news traveled uh, very far and, and very quickly. But um, I also didn't control how that story was told. And being a public figure, you know, everything, I remember there was somebody who called me, a, you know, a freelance writer, had never met them and said, you know, I'd like to write the story of the experience of your son's death. And I said, thank you, but I'm not interested. And he said to me, well, you know, if you do it in a few months closer to election day, people will think it's for political reasons. And you can imagine what I thought, but it's <laughs> that sort of thing where people feel free to um, use your life as fodder for whatever they choose to use it for. And you have to be very strong. You know, I, I think, you know, the six campaigns I had had before that probably helped me, um, you know, dig into a well of strength and having dealt with my husband's disability when my kids were only seven, nine and 11 and figuring out a way to pivot from that, you, you do get kind of superpowers when you go through something like this because you realize in a nanosecond what's worth your time and what's not worth your time and who's worth your time and who's not worth your time. And I tell people, like, mess with me. I don't use the word mess usually, but I'm going to say it for your podcast. You can say you whatever know, you want here. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Mess with me. Like, have at it. Bring it. Because you will never, ever be able to take me to a place that's darker or more um, devastating than the, 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 the place that I was taken to when we lost our son. This group of women who've all lost children, we talk about the vocabulary of grief that, you know, I will say to you, and it's been almost 12 years since we lost Noah, that the journey through grief, through therapy, through coaching, you know, there has been a, a, a long trajectory since that first day. When, my, when I thought I would never smile again, I had actually just finished opening a Relay for Life for the community. And so there were lots of pictures of me standing with people, cancer survivors, kids with cancer, with a big smile on my face. And I thought, I will never smile again, but I do. 
I, I smile, I laugh. I can remember not specifically when, but I remember the first time I laughed like a real laugh and had to like catch myself almost felt like it was like, where did that come from? Guilty, like this guilty feeling. Betrayal? Right. Was that a betrayal? You know, and, and, and many of the, many of the mothers I know, there is that, um, struggle between, you know, if I start living again, does that mean I've stopped grieving my loved one? You touched on something and it's something we have in common. And I, I think it's really important to share now because we have a new generation of people who everyone's life is public because everything's out there on social media now. But when I went through my trauma, it was very public. It was on the news, news trucks on my front lawn, which I'm sure you had the same thing. Thing about being this public pain and having to relive it all the time. I have a whole chapter in my book on creating a script to just go out because what, what do you say? Because there's no good answer. If you say I'm good, then they're like, oh, well, she's not dealing with it. If you say I'm terrible, they're like, oh, she's not dealing with it. Like it's it's really a difficult time. So share a little bit of, of your of that piece of it, because I think people, everyone's public now. Everything's on social media. And it's really difficult to step back out in the world after a really traumatic or tragic event, because it's all anybody wants to talk about. Well, you know a couple of thoughts came into my head as you were saying that because when we meet people, and again, I was still on the city council. I took about a month, which I was fortunate to be able to do. Um, I don't know if you know this, but while we have the Family and Medical Leave Act, which allows people who have a child to take 12 weeks of leave in order to bond with the child, if you lose a child, your job is guaranteed for three days. The same as serious? Absolutely. There is no special protection. And if you aren't able to do your job, your employer can certainly terminate you. And as you can imagine, the way I describe the, the impact of losing a child is if you were hit full force by a freight train and you survived, you would spend months, if not years, in hospitals and rehabilitation. And even when you came home, people would treat you very tenderly because they would know that the healing process was still going on. Losing a child is like being hit by a freight train at full force, except the wounds are not visible. And so the expectation is that you're, you're, you, you don't have an injury. You know, you had an event and it is a traumatic injury it takes years, if not a lifetime, to navigate your way through. And even when you start to re-engage with the world, people aren't thinking about it. And, and I'm, you know, we talk about things people say. I know a woman who lost her son to suicide and he was adopted. And someone at her church said to her, well, maybe it makes it a little easier that he wasn't your own. Oh my goodness. People are well-meaning, but they say the worst things because they don't know what to say. Well, I tell people that I distinguish between evil and stupid. <laughs> and most people, the words just come out of their mouth. Um, but, you know, I am in a public role. And so I go to events and people, you know, are curious about my life. And so they would say, you know, what do you do? You know, what does your husband do? How many kids do you, do you have kids? 
How many kids do you have? And even that, do I say I have three kids and I lost one? Do I say I have two kids? And that never felt right because Noah is still my son always. And so there was a woman uh, I met, you know, in the months following Noah's death. And we had that conversation. And I said, uh, uh, I have three kids, but unfortunately I lost my son, my middle son at the age of 22. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. She goes, was it an illness or an accident? And I said, it was an accident. She said, was it a car accident? Oh my and gosh, thought, let it go. Right, I thought, what the fuck? I'm sorry. <laughs> that one, I can't, I can't find a better word. Yep. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, why is that your business? And why are you thinking that that is a reasonable question to ask me? Exactly. What difference does it make? Um, I will say, Noah fell from a cliff. The Isla Vista is a, I like to refer to it as a slum by the sea, a student slum by the sea. You know, take any student community in America and just put it at the edge of a cliff, you know, and then have it 12 miles from the main town and have the university recognized every year as one of the top 10 party schools. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's like putting a bunch of toddlers in a house with a pool that has no gate and leaving them there and seeing how it all works out. Sadly, deaths in Isla Vista were not uncommon. Noah's fall from the cliff was the seventh recorded cliff fall that year, the only fatality. Oh, my goodness. But there had been five other kids who had died from other causes in Isla Vista that year, I would learn. And, and after Noah died, I worked to try and get the powers that be. And again, I'm somebody who knows how to navigate the halls of power. I'm somebody who's not afraid to pick up the phone and call the board of supervisors, you know, or, or the sheriff's department. Not, not what I wished had been done was done. Um, people wanted to protect the, the view. Five more young people have died from Cliff Falls since Noah died. Ah. And I felt you know, I knew that I wasn't responsible, but I felt that I had failed in my mission to protect them. And, um, you know, it's just, it's really hard to sort of understand this world, this bureaucratic world, but to, to feel that if people had cared, some of those young people would still be here today. It's hard. It's like being pulled into the undertow over and over and over again. But, um, but I have learned to navigate that. I was fortunate because I was running a campaign. My campaign manager was somebody I'd known for several years and both a campaign manager and a close friend. And she became my protector. She mm -hmm. made sure that what needed to get out got out. She posted people on my front door so that if people were coming with cards and flowers, they could collect them and let us rest and have peace because she knew that if we didn't have that protection, it would be an overwhelming wave of energy. And, you know, a lot of times people think, you know, I'm going to bring, you know, a cake over to so-and-so because they've just dealt with this difficult thing and I'm going to stay and visit with them for a while. And while the intention is great, um, you know, it, it's hard, it's hard to entertain people and to speak. It's incredibly exhausting. And, 
you know, I don't think I slept a normal night's sleep for two years. I also have another theory, which is that the statute of limitations for anybody who goes through a trauma where, where there is some public safety situation where somebody maybe has been killed or there's a, a question of wrongful death. I think the reason there's a two year statute of limitations on wrongful death is because you're clinically insane for the first two years. So you have the choice of either putting your broken self into the judicial system, which whatever our high-minded notions are of what it's there for, will not be will not be there to soothe your broken spirit. And um, or you lose the opportunity to really, once you've regained your senses, to pursue justice. It, it's been so fascinating because, you know, if I hadn't dealt with my husband's illness and happily 25 years later, he's still, you know, he, he's, he's limited, but he has a strong spirit and he's still as independent as he can be. Realizing that when I met grief after Noah's death, that grief was familiar to me. I hadn't thought of it as grief, but I went through grief when my husband got ill, when our life was turned on its head, when he had to give up a career that he had worked so hard to establish. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's interesting. I always was one of those people who, who never got therapy for anything because I thought I was an expert at taking my new pain and tucking it away someplace um, and that that was a superpower. But, and, and, and I resisted therapy even after Noah's death because I thought it would be like popping a champagne cork. Like I have no idea what's gonna fly out. My daughter, who wasn't even studying psychology at that point, who wasn't at that point in her education, had encouraged me to get therapy. I mean, she, she understood more than I did even at that time. And I started collecting cards from friends who, you know, asking for grief therapists. And I would call the therapist and most of these people are solo practitioners. So you get a voicemail and I couldn't even leave the message. I, mm. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't say what I needed to say. And so months went by and we celebrated Mother's Day with my daughter. And she and I were out doing a little shopping after. And she said to me, have you gotten therapy? And I said, no, but I am collecting cards. And she just like put her hand up and she said, don't even talk to me until you get therapy. And I really am so grateful in my Jewish motherness. Like that didn't sound very loving, but yeah. it was the most loving thing she could have done. And I, I absolutely feel like finding a good therapist was an amazing thing. And it was about healing, but it also was a journey of self-discovery. It was also understanding why things impacted me the way they did and the legacy of pain that we inherit from our forefathers, you know, and how we carry around you know, these sort of mental loops about, you know, having to succeed or not sharing secrets or not letting people know that you're struggling or any of these things. And none of them are healthy. I was always one of those people that carried a checklist in my head. I was always relitigating the past. I was worrying about the future. I remember sitting, uh, waiting for my kids to get out of school and just in the car, like with a few minutes to myself, 
I was thinking, okay, like now they're eight, 10 and 12, and then they're going to be nine. And before I knew it, you know, they were all adults. And, you know, I was like freaking out, like, you know, time is just, uh, you know, rushing by, you know, I am grateful that I have had both the personal support from my family and friends, um, and also good professional support. And I would encourage anybody who is dealing with something difficult to find good support. Um, I think, you know, as we talk in America today about people's needs, it is unfortunate that to get good therapy, it's usually very expensive. Anything you can get for nothing is usually not that valuable, though you should pursue it anyway, because anything is going to be better than nothing. But people really do have to um, care for themselves. And I would say for me, Noah's death was the beginning of my journey to understanding that if I didn't fill my own well, I could not ladle out to other people. And I'd been ladling from an empty well. I, if I had a thimble of water, I was ladling it out to other people. When I began my therapy, I remember saying to my therapist, oh my God, I know so many people who would benefit from knowing this epiphany that I had just you know, realized. And she said to me, and I didn't really understand it at the time, but I do now. She said, Beth, this is your journey. She understood that I had to be redirected from the part of me that wanted to help everybody else mm -hmm. because I was not going to heal if I did not feed my own spirit, my own soul, if I did not tend to my own broken heart. And if I did not show myself the same love and care that I believed I was showing everyone else, although now Brene Brown says you can never love anyone more than you love yourself. And she says the, the greatest pushback you get is from parents who are like, that's not true because I struggle, I still struggle with my own issues, but I love my kids. And, and the truth is you really can't. So it's a, it's not a selfish act to care for yourself. It's not a selfish act to tend to your own wounds. It's actually the most loving thing that you can do for the people around you. Correct. And I think for people who are like you and like me, who are big, you know, had our careers and our kids and everything moving forward at such a rapid pace, we hadn't stopped to take care of ourselves. And unfortunately, something like this will certainly put you in your place and show you how to do that. Two things you mentioned. Uh, one, when you said this, you know, when, pe when you walk out there, these people coming at you is kind of this, you said the undertow. And I describe it in my book as this sea of, sea of humanity, like the waves. Like, as soon as you come up from one wave, another one hits you. You just keep getting, you can't get out past the, the breakers. Um, but there is that. So you do need well, what I talk about is create a script, something to say that can, to protect yourself and to take control and empower you in a situation. Um, and you also mentioned people visiting. And I think that's really important. So if someone's listening and you know someone going through this, going and sitting and visiting puts that person now they have to take on your emotions and try to make you feel better, which is not a fun place to be. My husband was my protector. So he dealt with everybody at the door. He made sure I didn't see the newspaper, took away my cell phone and my um, computer. Like none of it got through to me. Uh, and he was very careful about who I was allowed to talk to on the phone, even when someone would call. And then he would say, she's got two minutes to listen to you or chat with you. And that's it. And he would make sure he cut it off. So to have someone around you to protect is really important. You, you mentioned somebody coming with a cake at our house. It was prayer and pasta. So apparently prayer and pastas are the answer to anything that goes on in the world. 
<laughs> Lots of prayer and pasta. You said you didn't, when you first said you didn't get any sleep, I thought to myself, well, didn't her therapist make her take something to turn off the crazy in her brain? Because that was the first time I'd ever taken a med was after the accident with Sam when I couldn't sleep because there is that piece and you need that sleep. Your brain is trying to, it's like you said, I love your analogy getting hit by a train. Your brain is trying to fix what's going on in there. It's really been hit with something it can't manage to figure out. So getting that sleep is so important. And so I'm glad you brought up all of those things. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get a full night. I mean, you know, like I, I slept in fits and starts, but I would fall asleep and then I would wake up with a start. Like it was like a jolt. And then I would have to work myself back to sleep. But you know, also um, something that I'm sure is very common for folks is you think about when is it safe for me to go back, for example, to yoga? Like I didn't want to go to yoga. I knew that I would feel very vulnerable in a space that was quiet and, you know, and, 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 but I, I finally went back and there was a guest instructor at the end of the yoga session during Shavasana, which for those who don't do yoga is when you actually get you, that's what I go to yoga for is the two minutes at the end of yoga when I just get to lay there and do nothing. It's the best part. Um, he was, he said, I'm going to read a passage from uh, Rumi. And it was about Noah. It was a passage about the prophet Noah. You know, it wasn't about my Noah, but it was about the prophet Noah. And I remember just grabbing my towel and putting it over my face because I felt like, like, like Noah was there. I mean, there are these signs, these experiences you have when you feel, I, I absolutely, I, I see Noah in birds and nature, in the little lizards that cross my path. Um, and I remember we live not far from Laguna beach and it's a nice place to take a drive to. And there was a, a small park that had these cutouts and it was like the, the oceanfront real estate we'll never own. So we would just put our chairs there. We would look at the ocean and there was a tree hanging over it. And this was, you know, probably a couple of years after Noah passed away. And I noticed there was a bird in the tree. And it, and it was just sitting there. And you know, birds, if you look at a bird, it flies away. It's like mm -hmm. it, knows, it knows you're looking. But this bird was just hanging out. And I kept looking up. And at a certain point, you know, my dad was like, what are you looking at? And I said, it's Noah. So of course, they start, you know, they first had that look of, we love you, so we will not have you institutionalized. But <laughs> but, but, but then everybody started looking. And I mean, this bird was in the tree for like, 10 minutes, just wow. hanging out. And then the bird shit on my father's arm. <laughs> and I said, you were looking for a sign, you got a sign, you know? So, and Noah was a very, he had a wonderful sense of humor, you know? So it was easy to imagine that that was his way of making sure we knew that he came <laughs> out with us as well. But again, I started this journey thinking I would never smile again, let alone tell an amusing story. Make shit uh, jokes. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we are, I think as a society, very uncomfortable with other people's pain. We're uncomfortable with our own pain. We're also uncomfortable with other people's pain. So we want them to 
get to a happy place as quickly as possible. We think that's what will help them. And, and what people don't realize is that if you can walk through grief, if you can, you know, it's not gonna be a straight line and you're gonna get knocked over and you're gonna be driving in your car and a song comes on and you're gonna need to pull to the side of the road because like, I didn't know what wailing was until Noah died. I didn't know what the difference between crying and wailing was, but I learned and I would hear a song or see something that was a trigger and just be like, like the silent scream and then just crying, you know, uncontrollably. And none of us want to be in that space, but I have found by not resisting it, by allowing it to wash over me, to, to getting to the other side of it, instead of thinking that I can, you know, outrun it or lock it in the closet. Um, that is how the journey has been most profoundly impactful for me. And I, to anybody beyond me, I'm the same person. It's, it's not like they go, wow, you have really transformed. Internally, I am a far more enlightened person. I do take self-care a lot more uh, seriously. I'm, I accept, I accept what I can't change. You know, that, that's not, not an easy thing. You know, that was not my MO. And, and I realized that, you know, twisting myself into a pretzel actually never caused anybody to think, do, or say something that I wanted them to. It just made me feel like a pretzel. So, so yeah, there have been gifts of grief. And, um, and, and I think that there is something to be drawn. We have grown most from our challenges. I absolutely have grown most from my challenges. So, yeah, I heard you say once your greatest challenges have helped you build resilience and forge your most effective tools back to that superpower, which is how I refer to it too. like, bring it, nothing can get me now, but all right. Well, before we go to our final three questions, which I always like to end with, and I feel like we could just talk all day long. I have so many more things I'm curious about. I did want to ask, was there a point? Uh, so this was how many years ago? Almost 12. 12, 12 years ago. So was there a point where you felt like, I think I'm okay. I think I'm going to be okay. Was it six months later? You mentioned two years later, but was there a point where you realized I'm going to be able to like build my life again? Um, well, I'm, I'm smiling here because there were definitely times when I thought, I don't think I need the therapy anymore. So I think this will be my last session. And then I would go in and she would find that soft fleshy spot that still was, you know, needed to be released. And, and so I think in that kind of type A way, I was, I was trying to pace this, you know, I was trying to like, okay, you know, like I think, you know, I, I, I clearly hadn't learned all the lessons of grief at that point. You know, I remember you asked me, I did not take any pharmaceuticals in the initial months. Um, and I, I had, you know, my, my other kids were, my son was at college, my daughter was working, um, you know, I could have, you know, I could have, but I, I never liked the feeling of feeling like something is going on inside of me. 
but but around mid year four, I felt like I needed something, and I went to my doctor, um, and um, and he prescribed something to me which had a generic name, but was a pretty strong, I don't know, antipsychotic drug of some sort. Anyway, I had uh, an appointment with my therapist. I didn't start taking it. I had an appointment with my therapist and I told her, you know, I, I got this prescription. So I think this is going to help. And she said, well, what is it? And I told her, she said, that's very strong. She said, that's going to change your brain chemistry. You are going to become dependent on it. And she said, just do me a favor. Wait until you cross the threshold of year five, because things change after you cross that threshold. And in fact, it did. And again, it wasn't like magically the, you know, the, the curtains parted and the sun came streaming in, but I definitely felt like I had navigated my way across that threshold and was gonna be able to do okay. This is not to say to anyone who is either, you know, on a pharmaceutical or considering it, that my way is the right way. It was the right way for me, but, but I am grateful that I was able to do this without feeling like I wasn't myself. And that's what I didn't want. I didn't want to be in a situation where I felt medicated, but you know, but I would say after year five and then, and then things change. I do tell people if anyone is dealing with with the immediacy of grief. I tell people, if you're new on this journey, whatever you're feeling is normal because people often think I'm, I'm losing my mind and you're feeling what everybody feels. It's a completely normal thing. And that um, in that first year, my perspective is in the first six to eight months, you're moving away from a date. You're, you're moving away from a time when that person was with you. And you're thinking just three, three months ago, we all had Thanksgiving together or six months ago, we all took the cruise to Aruba. Around the eighth month, seventh or eighth month, you start getting pulled towards that date on the next calendar. And when you cross into the second year, I mean, nothing is good about the first year, but the second year has another layer of complexity, at least in my experience, which is you're grieving your loss, but you're also reliving the grief of year one. So you are feeling what you felt in that first month, in that fifth month, in that eighth month. And it's now been more than a year that you've been without the person you love. And so, you know, and there are also certain days when I would just feel awful. Like it didn't matter. It could have been eight years after he, I lost him and I would feel awful. And when that first started happening, you know, really one of those, I just want to crawl back into bed sort of days. Right. I thought about it and I realized that that was the date that was um, like the same date on the calendar as the last day he had come here to visit. Like the brain has an amazing capacity to track things. So when you think you're feeling something that has no context, 
it probably does have a context. You may or may not immediately or ever know what that context is, but it is amazing because Noah died on a Saturday, June 6th, but June 6th doesn't fall on a Saturday every year. And so sometimes I feel the grief of that day on a Saturday that isn't a June 6th. And sometimes I feel it on a June 6th that isn't a Saturday. And so the brain is really, you talked about it a little bit, how your brain sort of helps you. I believe there's sort of a, a fog of protection that comes over your brain in the, you know, certainly for six to eight months that literally only lets a certain amount of information in. Like you're hearing things. I, I, I told people when people would come up to me, which again, being an elected official, people would come up in the grocery store and they had an issue with a pothole on their street or whatever. And you know, they weren't being insensitive, you know, but they they saw an opportunity. And and they would be speaking. And and citizen engagement is something I love. I mean, I consider myself a community builder much more than I consider myself a politician. So it was hard for me because I didn't want to be disrespectful of what they were saying. But to me, it was like the teacher on the Charlie Brown cartoons where it was like, yeah, exactly. And sort of like, I can't even focus on what you're saying. Like I worry that I won't be able to follow up with you. So I really think it's important for people who are post-traumatically in grief. And that may be the loss of somebody and that may be a different kind of trauma because grief is grief and we grieve losses and all of these things are losses. But when you are feeling something, first of all, you're not alone. You know, one of the things I learned right away is that even death has a community and you're not alone on the journey. Um, and don't be afraid to reach out to uh, somebody you know who has had a loss to ask them to walk with you in that space and to share with you. And when people have losses, often people will call me up and say, can I have them get in touch with you? And I always say yes, because I feel like anything I've learned on the journey, I'm willing to share. And if it's only to say to somebody, you will be okay. You know, it's not feeling, it's not going to feel okay for a long time, but you know, you're here for a reason and your loved one is always with you. And, and I shared with a woman who had lost her longtime partner, a quote that I found that said, I always thought that I would live the rest of my life with you, but I'm glad that you lived the rest of my life with me. Ah. And I thought that was so beautiful and it and it it helped her so much to reframe not to get over her, right. her pain, but to reframe it um, as thank you for journeying with me to the end of my life. She told me a story. She's from Canada and there are no Canadian geese anywhere near where she lives. And Canadian geese showed up on the green belt across from her. And she knows that it's him. I know there are yeah. so many amazing stories of connections and, um, you know, and people feeling uh, that they are not alone and that their loved ones are with them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
hear it so often on this podcast and from people that I've talked to through the, the many years of doing news. And uh, I like your poem, but I just think that for anyone who's listening, there's got to be some reassurance in that and your words about you're not alone and that uh, I hate it when people say time will heal all wounds. I really don't like that, but you're not alone and you will be okay, I think, are the messages that are the most important to say. Well, so time heals, time heals all wounds is right up there with um, God has a plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, that, you know, it, you know, there's, you know, everything has a reason. Yeah. yeah. Not everything. Neither there, one of, I, but I'm not really interested in having that conversation. So <laughs> I'm with you on that. And everyone that we talk to on this podcast say the same thing. Those two are not going to work when you are in the middle of something like this. Your big this is, as I call them. Well, let's jump to our three questions. You've given such wonderful advice and, and brought some clarity, I hope, to people who may be listening who are going through something similar. Uh, so for you, what would you say to your younger self now, if you could go back and whisper in your ears in the days or weeks after this happened? I would say, um, don't worry about what other people think, do, or say. Listen to your gut and follow your dreams and make self-care a priority because you can't serve from an empty vessel. So, Excellent advice. Excellent advice. And then one thing that you know now that you wish you had known then? I tell people the most important lesson I've learned on my journey is just how little I control. That at the end of the day, all I control are my actions and reactions. I have no power to alter what other people do think or say. At best, I can influence. And the second most important lesson is that every ounce of stress I've endured in my entire life is because I didn't understand lesson number one. That is brilliant. That is that should put that on a t-shirt and a bumper sticker because those that is wonderful, wonderful way to think and, and great advice. Uh, we all try to, especially people like you and me who want to control everything. Uh, once we let go and realize that we it's not all going to go as we plan, that uh, we'll be much healthier and happier in the long run. And then our final question, one thing that our listeners can do today if they're going through a tough spot right now, it could be loss, could be something else, but we'll focus on the loss piece. One thing our listeners can do today to help them get through their own big this that they're going through. Well, it would be wonderful if there was like one, you know, magic wand, crystal ball kind of thing. But I think that often when we go through a trauma or a loss, whatever tendencies we have to, to hear judgment. You know, there's always a measure of guilt, a measure of self-judgment, a sense of what did I do wrong or what could I have done or why didn't I run to the hospital the minute I knew that they were, you know, going to die, whatever it is. And it's one to be uh, very gentle with yourself and to realize that anything you think other people are doing to you to make your grief journey more difficult is really the committee in your head that is projecting your own fears, guilt, shame, insecurity onto what they're saying. And, you know, what I always remember is that 
It's hard for a mother and a father to lose a child, but it's harder for a father in some ways because they lose their child and they also lose their wife because I'm never going to be the same person. I might be 98% there now, but you know, you can't fix it. And men like to fix things. And this is not something that can be fixed. But I remember talking to my therapist about my frustration with my husband because we grieved differently. And sometimes I would feel like he wasn't demonstrably showing the same level of grief or understanding that when I came back from therapy, he shouldn't be waiting for with, with a question for me, that he should allow me to flow through the room. And I remember her saying to me, have you told him that? And I remember as she said it, like the synapses in my brain started firing. Like, what do you mean? Did I tell him that? Like, why wouldn't he know that? Like, why would I have to tell him that? But what I've learned is communication is the cause or lack thereof is the cause of a lot of additional burden on our grief. And whether it's asking for help or letting someone know that you really need some peace and quiet or asking your loved one how they're feeling about the trauma that you both experienced. We, we need to be willing to ask the questions that we don't ask, that we think people should magically know are in our heads and should simply respond to, you know, out of love. And so I think that's the biggest thing is that we, 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 I tell people the toughest relationship we will ever have in life is between us and ourselves. So when we can love ourselves and forgive ourselves and, and be grateful for the gifts that we bring and believe in ourselves and not feel like we have to measure ourselves against some external standard because absolutely nobody outside of you has the power to change your life that is exclusively in your realm. You know, I often think that the Wizard of Oz is a beautiful metaphor for so many things in life, but certainly in that regard, you know, we do have, you know, we don't, I don't want to make this sound overly simplistic. And a lot of people suffer loss and then they find out they're over leveraged and there was no life insurance policy and, you know, and, and the house is being repossessed. So I absolutely do not want to suggest that if you just think happy thoughts, it's all going to be fine. But, but know that you have the power within you to navigate whatever you need to navigate and that, um, you know, that you have to be kind to yourself on that journey. Yes. And as you said, and communication is key. Communication to yourself in your own head and then what you say to others to let them know what you need. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for being on today. I am sure that a lot of what you said today really resonated with our listeners. How can they follow you or learn more about you? Well, um, you know, I'm not one of those people who has a massive social media profile and, and some of the social media I have, I don't check that often, <laughs> but if anyone wants to get in touch with me, they can email me at bethkrom, B-E-T-H-K-R-O-M at gmail.com. And I do have a public Facebook page. And so, you know, if, if people would like to friend me, like me, or send me a message there, they certainly can do that. 
Okay, super. And I can put it in the notes uh, for this podcast as well. And thank you again for joining us. And thanks to everyone listening. It is when we talk about these very difficult topics and the tough stuff that we go through that we all get stronger together. So whatever you're going through, you've got this. The you 10 years from now, the you 10 years from now is counting on you to get through this. This has been another episode of This Seriously Sucks. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Nina Sossaman Pogue and her guests. They are not a substitute for professional advice. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK or send a text to www.crisistextline.org. For more resources, or to share your story, or to get a free copy of my book, go to mythis.club. There is a whole club of folks out there who want to help you get through this.